Yeah, let's open God's Word. Uh, those two passages, they're written on the front of your outline. Uh, the first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams and springs, deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, uh, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you, Millie. Welcome, folks. Um, a great unveiling, by the way. New series, new look. Tiana made me. Hopefully, by the time we get to the end, I'll have it back. Anyway, <coughs> um, welcome if you are new or visiting. My name's Tim, behind the beard, and uh, it is great to be uh, that you're here with us. I hope that you enjoy uh, spending this time in Luke's uh, gospel with us. Um, we are going to be picking back up where we left off earlier in the, in the year. We're going to be picking up at Luke 4, just like Millie read. But how about we, um, we pray as we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, um, for the opportunity to study your word, to be able to look into it clearly, to be able to see you through it. And we pray that not just, not just seeing you, but how we respond might be shaped by today uh, and how you speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Rightio, our series on Luke is called He's the One. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time or you've been around a churches uh, at any uh, moment of your life, I'm sure you'll immediately realise that he in this title is Jesus. All right? That's uncontroversial, that point. But as to what's meant by he's the one, the one bit, well, that's not always clear. In fact, it's not always agreed upon even by people who would readily identify as Christians. Do you realise that? 
So what do I mean when I say he, Jesus, is the one? I mean, at one level, you shouldn't really care what I think. (laughs) Because when it comes to understanding Jesus, mere opinions are of very little value. Uh, What I mean is I could line up 100 people on the street down in Wagga and ask them what they think about Jesus or what they think it means for him to be the one, and I'd likely get 100 different responses. I'd probably get multiple different opinions, but that's probably all they'd be, opinions. And so what I want to say is, rather than settling for mere opinions, you'd be better off, I'd be better off, basing our understanding of Jesus and, and what it means for him to be the one, we'd be better off basing that on the evidence or on the historical data or on, on God's own revelation of himself, not on what I or Johnny Lunchbox or Sally Good do good down the street thinks. You see what I mean? Because that, that's what we intend to do here through this series on Luke. We're going to spend the next about 12 weeks sifting through the evidence about Jesus based on the eyewitness accounts of those who saw him, of those who spoke to him, of those who interacted with him, those who had the figurative front row seats of the remarkable reality-altering events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. And I really do want you to be super aware as we kick off here that that's not an overstatement, that's not an overreach. I want you to appreciate the significance of what I've just said there because what we are dealing with in the pages of Luke is valid, reasonable, I want to say invaluable, credible eyewitness testimony. In fact, just to look back quickly at Luke's opening statement of his account, we looked at this earlier in the year, but again, realise this is exactly what he's on about. This one will come up on the screen. Luke 1, 1 1-4 says this, Luke starting off, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decide to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now there's a whole sermon there. There's a whole lot of interesting stuff to explore in those first, first four verses. In fact, I preached that one on 11th of April this year. If you want to go back and have a squeeze, it's on the, online. But, but I bring it up again. I go back there just quickly. It's to underline and to properly calibrate or recalibrate us for our series on Luke so that you realise that what we're dealing with here is not just mere conjecture, it's not just opinion, it's attested, corroborated, carefully investigated, carefully recorded eyewitness evidence. The implication of that is that this is the basis for the right foundation uh, to form a solid opinion about Jesus, Uh, an opinion about Jesus that actually holds water, uh, uh, that genuinely has credibility. In fact, I want to say that the accounts in the Bible... Uh, the gospel accounts are the place to base an understanding of Jesus that can stand up to the scrutiny, whether it be historical scrutiny or philosophical scrutiny or whatever other scrutiny you'd, claim, you'd care to name. Here's the place where we need, to, we need to understand the answer to what it means for Jesus to be the one. And so that's what we're doing, looking at the different sections of Luke, not just uncovering what it reveals about Jesus, but how it ought to shape how it or change, how it might strengthen or sharpen our understanding of what it means that he's the one. So let's dive in. Luke 4, 1 to 13. And let me just paint for you right off the bat the big idea I want to convince you of from this passage. What does it mean for Jesus to be the one in this section? Well, where everybody else failed, Jesus succeeded. Where everyone else faltered, Jesus stayed faithful. 
where everyone else gave in to sin, Jesus gave glory to God. He's the one. See with, see with me in the text. Look at it there. Uh, 4 verse 1. This is how it starts. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by, that, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, there's a few interesting little tidbits straight away in here, isn't there? Uh, for example, notice it's not the lack of the Holy Spirit's presence here that results in Jesus' temptation. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the, the lack of his involvement here that leads to this scene where, in this section where Jesus is tempted. In fact, there's a, not just a suggestion, actually. It's, it's really clear, grammatically clear, that the Spirit, it's the Spirit that's leading Jesus here. It's the Spirit that's leading Jesus out into the wilderness, where he's tempted by the devil. Here he's referred to by the, the name uh, Diablos. It's the, um, the slanderer. The devil gets a couple of different names according to his characteristics. Here it's the slanderer. Now straight away it does raise some questions, or it ought to raise some questions. For example, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, which we'll see a little bit later in Luke 11, Jesus teaches them to pray, Luke 11:4, lead us not into temptation. It's part of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? James, later on, will say in James 1.13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Oh, that's a bit weird. What's going on here? Why would Jesus teach us to pray and ask God to protect us from temptation, not to lead us in temptation? Why would James say God doesn't lead us into temptation if here it looks like God the Spirit himself is driving God the Son to temptation. Do you feel, do you feel the tension? What's going on? And it's important to actually recognise and ask this question and it's important that we need to be careful to understand this because there is a significant principle going on here that we need to see, that we need to understand and apply if we're to reconcile this apparent tension. And it's the principle, I want to say, of intentions. Namely, God's intention versus anyone else's intention in a given situation. In fact, I want to say that all through Scripture, this is a principle that is shown again and again and again that really does underpin a proper understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's the principle of intentions. And, and what I want you to see here is that it really is God the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness. But it's not God's intention to tempt Jesus. No, that's what the devil's doing, verse 2. That's what the devil's intention is. God's intention, on the other hand, at the same time, is to test Jesus. Now, you may be looking at me at this point and go, what the heck is the difference? <laughs> and I want to say there are stacks of difference. Think about this for a moment. To tempt someone. What does it mean to tempt? That means to coerce someone into wrongdoing. It's to, to influence them or entice them, even pressure them to do something that is improper. As we'll see, this is exactly what the devil is on about. This is what the slander is doing. This is what he's angling at in the wilderness scene with Jesus. He is trying to entice him to act as something that God hates. And yet at the very same time, through the very same events, God's intention is to test Jesus. His intention is to prove or reveal the quality of Jesus' character and his faithfulness. Now, there's a light year of difference. You may look at me and not be able to discern the difference, but I think you can. In fact, I don't think it's hard to reconcile these two things or, or demonstrate the difference. Anyone here had a COVID test? Yes? 
If you've had a COVID test during this pandemic, you should readily see the difference because a COVID test has nothing to do with the coercion to, uh, for you to do wrong. In fact, if you went for a COVID test and you attempted to do the wrong thing, please see in New South Wales Health, something went wrong. All right? Either Luke Hipwell did it or... No, <laughs> Luke always gets a mention. Sorry, mate. Uh, <clears throat> what, I, what I mean is the test isn't encouraging you to have COVID. The tester is not there daring you to be infectious. Go on, do it, do it. Come on, you can do it. Be infectious. Take a chance. No. The test is not using reward or punishment to try to influence your result. That's the definition of temptation. Now, what they're doing is they're testing you with their sole intention to prove categorically whether you have the disease or not. This is a test. And the test will reveal or uncover what is going on beyond sight. And it's right and it's appropriate in that sense to be tested. And so it is with Jesus. It's right and appropriate for God to test him. That is, it's right and appropriate for God to prove him. Because this will demonstrate who Jesus is and the significance of that result is massive. Because where everywhere, everyone before Jesus has failed this test and given in to temptation, Jesus succeeds because he's the one. I mean, just look how it plays out with the devil's temptation of Jesus. Look at the significance of the testing and the proof it reveals. Have a look. Luke 4, verse 3. Look at it with me in your Bibles there. The devil said to him, said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to, be, uh, to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, just at face value, it's pretty, um, pretty clear to see how the devil is tempting Jesus here. It's... He's been out in the wilderness for you know, a long time, 40 days, 40 nights, eating nothing. We're told he's very hungry. That is completely reasonable, completely able to be... Re uh, to, you, know, you, can, you can resonate with that, can't you? In fact, it's why they always say, never do the shopping when you're hungry. You don't make good decisions when you're hungry. Have you noticed that? Never do the groceries when you're hungry. If, if you do, you'll end up leaving the shops with an out-of-date birthday cake and three kilos of cocktail frankfurts, and only one of those items will make it to the unpacking at, at home. That's, am I the only one? Like, come on, help me out here. <laughs> but notice the shape of the temptation. What is it that the devil is actually trying to get Jesus to do here that is inappropriate? Have you ever actually wondered that? What is he trying to get him to do here that is inappropriate, that is somehow uh, the wrong thing? Well, first off, you've got to notice that there's something to do with a bit of a smuggled-in power play that the devil's, in the devil's temptation. It goes along those lines of, if you are, then do. You see the dynamic that the devil is setting up here? His talent challenge to Jesus and his temptation to Jesus seems reasonable on the surface. You're hungry, you've got no food, but you're the son of God, you can make your own food. And his logic's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that logic. He's right. Jesus does have divine authority to turn stones into bread. But that would be working. And in fact, that would be doing, well, that would be to dance to the devil's tune. It would be like the, the devil's the one cranking the, the music and Jesus is the one dancing. That's the dynamic he's setting up here. And more than that, in fact, that would be to do, well, it would be to work against the purpose for which Jesus took on flesh in the first place. It would be to fail the testing and the proofing that the Father God is doing here in this moment. What I mean is basically the same thing that Paul makes plain in Philippians 2. If you have a look at Philippians 2, it should come up on the screen. I just realised that I didn't write it down, so let me find it in my book. Philippians 2, I'm reading out of a slightly different version. But Philippians 2, 6 to 8, 
talks about um, <clears throat> make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, uh, even to the point of death, death on a cross. This is what I mean. Jesus, though fully God in his own right, he did not use his divine authority in the flesh to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. Rather, he veiled his divinity in the likeness of flesh, in the flesh. And he instead submitted himself to the Father's will and the Spirit's empowering. Did you notice that's consistent throughout Jesus' ministry? It's not that he lacks divinity suddenly, it's that he has willingly emptied himself or veiled that in the flesh so that he might trust his Father's will and the Spirit's empowerment. And he did this to pass the test of obedience to the Father that the rest of humanity failed dismally in. In fact, this is where the, um, the exchange between the devil and Jesus becomes actually really interesting and important. Notice the devil's challenging here. He's challenging Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Now, Generally, when we think or we hear the term Son of God, we immediately think of the second person of the Trinity. Right? Yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the That's not wrong, but do you realise that the Son of God is a title? It's not, the, it's not just worn by Jesus. In fact, it's worn by others in the Bible also. Do you realise that? In fact, Adam, the first man in creation, he was referred to as the Son of God in Luke's genealogy. The very last verse before we picked up here, look at Luke 30, 38. It's just... just Tick your eyes up. Verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is called the son of God. Yes? But when that son of God, when Adam was tempted by the devil, he failed in spectacular fashion. In fact, the nation of Israel are also referred to by God collectively as his son. Exodus 4.22 should come up on the screen. It's a prime example. Yahweh says... Israel is my firstborn son, as he is speaking through Moses to the Pharaoh, demanding he let them go. But when that son of God was tested in the wilderness, just like we heard in Deuteronomy 8, that when God led them through the wilderness to humble them through hunger, to test and reveal what was in their hearts as to whether or not they would keep his command, that son of God failed in spectacular fashion too. And not just... Adam, and not just the nation of Israel, but even the kings of Israel, like Solomon, they were referred to as the Son of God. In fact, example, 2 Samuel 7.14, God speaking to David about Solomon, says, I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. This is consistent with the kings of Israel. They're called the Son of God. And how did Solomon go? And how did the rest of the kings go at honouring, obeying, trusting and submitting to God as father? Another big, fat, disappointing fail. But this son of God, Jesus, he's the true Israelite. This son of God, Jesus, he's the genuine king of Israel. And so where Adam and the kings and the nation failed, Jesus succeeds. It's why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 to the devil. Because here he is showing what a true son of God does. Because facing temptation by the devil, the true son of God is revealed in the testing. Even through the maddening, fatigued, 
notion of extreme hunger. Jesus reveals the heart's desire of the one who is genuinely willing and able to honour, obey and trust and submit to God. And he does that by never elevating his temporal physical desires above his desire to honour and trust God alone. What does he say? Man does not live by bread alone. But how? But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, where Israel in the wilderness failed to trust God in the face of their hunger, where they elevated their desire for their hungry bellies to be filled over trust and submission to God, they even, can you remember, you remember they even sat pining in the desert. Oh, I remember when we were back in Egypt, we were around big pots of meat. You were slaves in Egypt for crying out loud. What are you doing? Ah, oh, the good old days when we were around pots. What? Rather than relishing in the miraculous provision of the God of the universe who has promised them a future beyond imagination. See, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And it's a similar story in the next temptation scene. Here again, the devil's temptation of Jesus is to do something really that sounds very nice on the surface. Look at it with me. Luke 4 verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give them to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Now, just put aside for the minute, just put aside the question of whether the devil has all the authority and the splendor of the world at this point and whether indeed he could give it to Jesus if Jesus complied with his request. Just put that aside for a second. It's a bigger, deeper theological question than we've got time to go in this morning. But instead, notice the nature of the temptation the devil is applying. Because there's a sense here where Jesus knows that he is destined to again take up all authority in heaven and on earth. That is his. He's emptied himself presently. We know that he's going to pick it up. In fact, he says the same thing in Matthew 28, 18. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He knows that that is his future He's laid that down for the moment in his incarnation, taking on the flesh, but he also knows the means by which he'll take it up. And he knows it's through the physical pain of crucifixion. And more significantly, he knows it's through the relational pain of the Father's wrath as Jesus becomes the sin bearer for his people. Now, I don't think we can fully understand, and I certainly don't have the mastery of language fit enough to be able to describe the agony and the horror that Jesus suffers on the cross. And I'm not talking about the physical states. I'm not talking about the physical sense. In fact, it's not just that I personally am not talented enough to capture it in words. It's that words and human emotions are incapable of plumbing the depths of exactly what went on as the Father poured his wrath on the righteous Son, his righteous anger for sin on the sinless. I can't, I can't capture that. I can't imagine that. That's the true horror of the cross. The nails in the hands and the feet, the spear, that's horrible. But the true horror is what is going on relationally between the Father and the Son who have existed in eternity in that mutual loving perfection. But to say that it was the most horrendous moment in history is a complete understatement. So what's the devil offering Jesus here? Well, on the surface at least, he's, he's, he's offering an easier route to the same supposed result. The temptation here is for Jesus to short-circuit the Father's plan. 
The Father's plan for Christ's exaltation through humiliation and devastation. No, 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 take the easy road to glory. It's at the bargain basement price of denying God his rightful place. Wait, what? You see, this is very similar to the devil's temptation of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Essentially, what the devil is doing is he's suggesting that the Father does not have Jesus' best interest at heart. He's holding out on you. There's another way. It's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. To Adam and Eve, there's another way to experience the fullness of creation. Take the apple. God's holding out on you. For Jesus, it's the, the, uh, the alternative to achieving glory. The problem with both of these, it's requiring a trust in the devil and a doubting in God. And where Adam and Eve fail, Jesus succeeds. I mean, look at Jesus' response in Luke 4, verse 8. He simply says, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I mean, it's simple and it's bang on. Jesus again quoting Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6. Jesus, the true son of God, passes the test because he not only knows his father's word, but he trusts his father's way. And so Jesus here chooses what is right over what is easy. Now, just hold on to that thought for a second. That is a principle that is worth applying to life as Christians, isn't it? Doing what is right over what is easy. Because you, because you know God's word, because you trust God's way, that we would be known as people who, in the moment of temptation, and in that very same moment of testing, we would be Christ-like and choose what is right over what is easy. I mean, there are a thousand ways that we could explore this and, and illustrate this uh, and apply it in our own circumstances. I'll give you a couple of, few, a couple of uh, examples that might hopefully resonate with lots of people. You know, it's that moment in the conversation with your friends or your workmates when the popular op opinion or practice at work, it's just not God-honouring and there's no two ways about it. But it's easy to stay silent than to stand alone. What do you do? Do you do what is right or do you do what is easy? Or if you're a parent, how often are you tempted to look the other way at that critical moment when a child, def child defies you because it's easier to ignore it than to take the loving, right, yet difficult route of discipline, of loving discipline? What about when you've already done the wrong thing? What about when you've already made the mistake, whether it be at home or at school or at work or with a friend, whatever, and you're asked that direct, qu direct question by the person that you've either deliberately or inadvertently hurt, do you not feel the temptation at that point to minimise or deflect or pretend or any other word you'd like to substitute in as a euphemism for lying? Don't you feel the temptation to do what is easier? Because sometimes the truth is more complicated or difficult than you feel like you can explain or again, it's just more ugly than you'd like to admit. Though it's right, you would. Friends, these moments come upon us all the time, don't they? And yet in that same moment, the devil is tempting. He's tempting us to do what is easy rather than what is right. Don't you see that that same, that the, that, sorry, the, the, the meagre reward of the ease comes at the huge expense of dishonouring God? Do you not see that? Friend, friends, we need not desire the situations upon us, weekly, daily, maybe, whatever it is, but it is so necessary at these moments to recognise them that we might stand firm in the time of testing. In those moments of temptation, as Jesus models here, we need a genuine reliance on God's spirit and a firm grisp, grisp, grasp, rather, a firm grasp on God's word, so firm that it permeates to the very core that we would think and act like Jesus in these moments. 
that forsaking all else, be it ease or popularity or some other tangible reward of any nature, that we would rather honour God above all else, even when it hurts. Friends, this is what God is calling us to. This is what Jesus is modelling here. But let's look at the third example of the devil's temptation of, of Jesus and God's proving of his character and identity. It's where the devil shows himself for the diabolical slanderer that he really is. You see, so far his attempts to tempt Jesus into wrongdoing have been, well, they've been fended off by Jesus using God's word. So what does the devil use as his next weapon? It's diabolical genius, isn't it? Let's go with God's word. Read it with me. Luke 4 verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And then the devil quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now we've got to take note here, folks. This is something that Christians need to understand and yet often overlook. Do you realise the devil knows God's word really well? Do you realise the devil is somewhat of a theologian and he actually has a right knowledge of God? The difference is he does not apply this knowledge rightly or well. You see, though the devil knows God's word, though he knows God, he does not submit to it or seek to honour and obey God through it. No, rather the devil now attempts to weaponise God's word, to attack God's people, to tempt them by twisting and obscuring God's word, seeking to lead God's people astray through it, even through it. Wowzers, what a jerk. And again, the only way to recognise and defend against this temptation is to really know the truth of God's word and genuinely seek to honour and obey God through his word as he intends. Not as other people intend, not as the devil seeks to twist and pervert it. You see, Jesus' response is not to deny God's word in Psalm 91. God really does promise protection for those who take refuge in him. Just think about that a minute. The whole point of Psalm 91 is God is promising refuge for those who seek... Wow, that's protection for those who take refuge in him. If you're not a Christian here today, that's something you need to know and look into. That's an amazing promise. But Jesus knows here that Psalms, this psalm is not pointing to a temporal protection, but it's God's salvation protection. It's an everlasting protection. Psalm 91, 16 picks it up perfectly. It's about God's salvation plan. It's not a license to jump off tall buildings or to run out into highway traffic expecting that God will send his angels to save you from that kind of stupid, selfish, and I'm going to say blasphemous act. And I, and I don't hesitate from saying that is a blasphemous stupidity. Because in that scenario, you now would be attempting to control God as though you were the one cranking the box and he's the one doing the dance, as though it's his job to do your bidding. Do you see that? Do you see how odds that is, at odds that is with willing submission to the God of the... No. And so Jesus rightly slaps that away. Again, he rightly quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 to put this kind of foolish talk in its proper place. Jesus answers, Luke 4 verse 12, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He said, it's God's prerogative to test you because he's God, because he's the one in control, and because he's the one who in his kindness 
tests and proves and reveals the situations of our own hearts, which in our cases reveals a massive problem, but in Jesus' case reveals the even bigger solution. You see, Jesus succeeds because he's the one. Now, friends, I want to wrap this all up for you here. I want to tie this all together as we finish with some things to take forward into this week, indeed into the rest of life. Let me just summarise them really quickly for you as we wrap up. Number one, if you're a Christian here already today, please realise this. Having God's spirit doesn't prevent the devil's temptation. Do you know that? No, temptation will still happen. And the devil's desire is still for you to cave in. But at the very same moment, God is working in that to test and reveal your heart. God is not absent from that. God is not out of control in that. In fact, he's making you realise your dire need for him and that your only hope to stand firm is by his strength. That's the first thing to remember. Being a Christian, having God's spirit does not cancel out temptation. And whether you're a Christian or not, realise this. This is the second thing I want you to realise. Realise that the temptation, by definition, is smooth and appealing. It's often easier, but it's never right. Sin is tempting because it often looks so good. Sin is tempting because it often sounds so reasonable. Sin is so tempting because it always promises to satisfy some desire or urge but it never delivers. It's like a Snickers bar. What a lying chocolate bar that is. Really satisfies? I'm not satisfied. I've had plenty of Snickers. <laughs> All sin and temptation does is make you an enemy of God. That's the second thing you need to realise. The temptation is smooth and it sounds good and it never satisfies. The third thing I want you to recognise is the only way, the only way to recognise and resist the devil's temptation is by God's spirit through the truth of his word. And it is so important, so important, because as we've seen, temptation will come often even in the form of God's word twisted, God's word obscured and perverted. It will come sometimes through the mouths of people who will claim Jesus' name. Do you realise that? That is a scary notion. In fact, even in these last couple of weeks, I've been personally alarmed by the number of articles I've read, uh, podcasts I've listened to, of people claiming to be um, progressive Christians, is the, is the euphemism, or ex-evangelicals. Yeah? People who try to use God's word, and let me say, in the most sincere and on the surface, cheery, good-hearted way, um, on the surface... And yet they use God's word to try to undermine God's obedience, sorry, obedience to God's word. And I want to say it is nothing short of devilish and evil. Friends, the only way to be able to spot that kind of fake, the only way to be able to stand against, against that kind of abuse of scripture is to know it well, to know it personally, to soak in it daily, and to ask God to illuminate his word by his spirit to you continually. That's number three. And the fourth thing is, folks, when you and I fail in these times of testing, when you give in to temptation, don't. But when you do, remember, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Where the kingship failed, Jesus succeeds. And when you and I fail, we need to look to Jesus, we need to run to Jesus. He succeeds on our behalf too. Have a look. Let me, let me finish it with this. 
the writer to the Hebrews tells us. I didn't put it down here. I reckon it's 12 verse 4, 12 verse something. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, he says, we do not have a high priest. No, it's not. It's 4 verse something, isn't it? Oh, it's behind me. That's right. There we go. 4 verse 15. He was up there for a reason, Mike. As the writer of the Hebrews tells us, this is what he says. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with us. Sorry, with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, what a magnificent promise for failing people like us. What a marvel and what a privilege to be able to run to Jesus and find the grace and the mercy we so desperately and sorely need often because where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus is the one. He is the one who, where everyone else failed and caved in, Jesus succeeds. That he honours you, that he glorifies you, that he is faithful to you, even to the point of grisly death on a cross, even to the point of an excruciating, unimaginable and indescribable event of facing you in wrath. Jesus does that on our behalf. He bears that for us so we might not have to bear it ourselves. Father, we ask that when we fail, that we would be quick to run to Jesus who knows what it is to be weak and tempted and yet he succeeds. Father, we pray that you would do that for us and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.